Good morning. My name is Mark Dean. I am a full-time... Full, what? Oh, hi. <laughs> hi, I'm Mark Dean. No, that's Wednesday nights. Uh, I'm a full-time uh, uh, youth worker with Toronto Youth for Christ. I'm also an entrepreneur. My wife and I have a bookstore here in Bradford. And uh, this is my home church. I'm an ordained pastor. My certificate of ministry is with the Associated Gospel Church. So in 10 seconds, that's a little bit about me. And oh yeah, I'm a, how could I forget that? I'm a new grandpa, that's true. Thank you. October 23rd, 1993. Major League Baseball World Series between the Toronto uh, Blue Jays and the Philadelphia Phillies. It's game six, it's bottom of the sixth inning, and the Phillies are winning six to five. But the Jays have two runners on bases, and Joe Carter from the Jays steps up to the plate. Joe is a great player, and he's a heavy hitter. The pitcher throws three balls away on purpose, trying to get Joe to swing, but he doesn't fall for it. And then the next one comes, and Joe swings, and he misses, strike one. Then he lets one go, and it gets called, strike two. So there's ball three, strike two, something has to happen on the next pitch. Uh, he's facing a pitcher called Mitch Williams. Mitch is in his prime, he's 29 years old, he's the second pitcher that Philadelphia has put on the plate that night, and he goes in, uh, steps up to the plate, and he kind of does his thing that pitchers do, you know, he looks and you know, and then he, he nods and he shakes his head and he nods and, and then he does his big, you know, he spits and, you know, does his routine and, and he winds up, lifts his leg and he starts to throw the ball. And as he's throwing the ball, there's a number of things that he can do to affect what is going to happen with this ball, okay? And so the way that he, the way that he moves his, his shoulder... Uh, the way that he flexes his elbow, the, the turning and the, and the pitching of his wrist, okay? The placement of his fingers, where, where the threads are on the ball, the, the way that he flicks his fingers as it leaves. But the moment that ball leaves his fingertips, there is nothing that Mitch can do to impact the path that this ball is going to take. So he pitches it, the ball is in the air, the game has not been won or lost at this point. There's many factors that can still impact this ball, right? Temperature, humidity, the spin on the ball, even acts of God like lightning and gravimetric waves. There's so many things that can impact the path that this ball takes. He was so good, Mitch was, that they called him 99, which was the number on his jersey. The idea being that everything he did was 99 miles an hour, and this pitch was a hard and a fast pitch, and it cut toward Joe and down a little bit. Joe takes a swing, and he hits the ball. The ball flies over the left field fence. The other two runners in front of Joe score, and Joe does as well, and the game ends with the Jays winning the World Series 8-6. to six. I wasn't there, but I was watching the game. If only evangelism was a story that could be told so easily and cleanly and crisply. We can train and prepare like Mitch or Joe, but we're not necessarily always going to feel like we're in our spiritual prime, our evangelistic prime. 
Sometimes delivering the gospel is stressful, and it's messy, and we can do everything right, but it just doesn't come out the way it's supposed to. A lot of people are like, just tell me what to do. How do I evangelize? Somebody tell me what the right way is to do it. Well, today, I don't necessarily have all those answers because this is a complex topic, but I want to take a deeper dive into how to share the gospel. We've been talking about this for a number of weeks now, and I would like to give you five examples of real-life evangelism. They're based in my personal experiences, either observed or lived, and I'm going to frame them for you in contextualized scripture. So bear with me for a couple minutes while I cover a few things first. To get us started, I have a Slack question for you, and the Slack question is about spiritual gifting. Do you have a sense of your spiritual gifting, and have you utilized it? Do you have a sense of what your spiritual gifting is, and have you utilized it? Now, what does spiritual gifting have to do with evangelism, you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. Rob reminded us a few weeks ago that if we enter into evangelism by creating a problem for someone, you are a sinner, and then trying to help them solve that problem, it almost feels like we're trying to sell them something. Instead, today I want to demonstrate a method that utilizes spiritual gifting, and I'm going to talk about five spiritual gifts, and then I'm going to give you an example of what a conversation would look like with four of those spiritual giftings. Uh, I find that most people are very good at doing nice things. In fact, uh, that's what most people think of when they think about evangelism. They think, oh, I'll start by doing something nice, right? Random acts of kindness are prolific. And I don't want to discourage that because it's a good starting point, but it's not what sets us apart as Christians. Last August, there was a high-profile death in the ranks of, uh, of the Hells Angels, and the club decided to do a memorial ride from Newmarket to Toronto, and they lined up their motorcycles at the shop right in front of our ministry. And they were there for about an hour and a half just gathering all these motorcyclists, all these Hells Angels milling around on the front lawn of the shop, and I had a chance to talk to quite a lot of them. And I'll tell you something, they were nice guys when I'm talking to them. They're involved in organized crime, but when you chat with them, they're pretty much nice guys. Being nice is not what sets us apart as believers. Being nice is part of the equation when it comes to evangelism, but being nice is not evangelism. I'd like to take a look back at the Slack question, but my computer just bit the dust, and I'm not sure if I can pull... Oh, I can. Somebody says, I don't have a sense of my gifting. You know, I'm going to suggest to Rob that we do a sermon series on spiritual gifting. It's probably a good one to help us to discuss that. Um, the, uh, some people would say, for example, administration is my spiritual gifting. Uh, and so they might feel that way because whenever they have an opportunity to serve or, or minister to somebody, they do that by organizing things and administrating. So they'll say, oh, I'm going to do your taxes or something like that. That would be an example of someone using their gifting of administration. Someone says, I believe my gift is, gift is hospitality. I'm glad to hear that. Hospitality is one of the ones I'm going to speak about today. I haven't been able to use it much because we didn't even have a dinner table. <laughs> Good point. God gives each Christian certain abilities to minister to others, such as teaching. Teaching is one. Giving is one. Administration is one. Correct? The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that all of us are given spiritual giftings. All of us are given spiritual giftings. So that's an assumption that I'm working with today. Uh, maybe you're going to see, I'm going to give you uh, five examples. So let's put up the list of five spiritual giftings I'm going to talk about today. Faith, hospitality, mercy, wisdom, and helping. 
Uh, I chose these because I want to try and get a good cross-section of people from this church. And I actually think that I may land on quite a few of you by, by picking this. Uh, but I don't know. I'm not a prophet, so I can't say for sure. But I think that this probably represents a good cross-section of people from this church. Now, these aren't all of the gifts, obviously. There's many spiritual giftings. Uh, and so if you don't see yours here in the list, that's okay. Uh, don't despair. We, you can still apply the principles that we're talking about for your own specific uh, spiritual gifting. So the first one I'm going to talk about is faith. Uh, scripture, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift from God. Now, the gift that they're talking about in this verse is actually the gift of grace, not the gift of faith. But what I'm showing here is that faith is how we can bring God's grace to people. Now, I think that faith is an often misunderstood spiritual gift. Uh, it's also the easiest one for me to talk about because it's, it's my gifting. But faith in many other languages specifically in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, faith is a noun and a verb. But in English, it's not an action word. So you don't faith something. Okay, well, I'm going to faith this problem to fix it. But that's the way that the word is used in many other languages. Uh, the Augusta Chronicle lists faith as, and I'll quote them, a verb, an action verb. In the 11th chapter of Hebrews, the author lists a number of familiar examples of faith in action from Abraham and Sarah to Moses and Samson and, Samson and Samuel and David. So, for example, you can faith something, okay? I'm going to faith that problem. It's an action. To apply that to evangelism, it means that those of us who have the gift of faith seldom have to prepare or practice for a, a faith-filled conversation to take place. I had a spiritual director recognize my gifting when I was in university, and he helped me to encourage that. And uh, he and my hermeneutics teacher, were they were like, Mark, for someone with the gift of faith, you have to be careful that you know what you're talking about because you have a tendency just to faith your way, kind of feel your way through things. And so he really encouraged those that have the gift of faith to steep themselves in Scripture. He's like, you have to know your Scripture. You have to breathe it and bleed it and ooze it out of every pore in your body. Know your Scripture because it's what guides you in your conversations. I might have lots of heady and philosophical questions inside that plague me, but when I just read the Bible, I gain understanding and peace about who God is. So, if you are uh, totally comfortable at starting a faith conversation without any preparation and it just flows from you, it may be that you have the gift of faith. But for the rest of, of, of the people who are gifted, those who have the gift of faith, we need to realize that it's not always that easy for people. They need uh, they need kind of a framework by which to work to to have those faith-filled conversations And so we'll look at the other gifts and talk about how that framework works hospitality Romans 12 13 share with the Lord Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality in North America When we think of hospitality, we often think about food, right? Invite them over for dinner uh, sure, but we can share the spare bedroom in our home to a student that is in need. We can lend our car to people. We can send encouraging text. We can remember their birthday and host, host a little bit of a gathering for them. 
Uh, in my experience, many people who are gifted in hospitality also have the love language of acts of service. And I don't think that's a coincidence. They go well together. So here's how a faith-filled conversation looks for someone who has the gift of hospitality, okay? I'm going to make up names in these examples. So in, in this example, uh, I'm calling the guy James. I say, hey, James, can Corey and I babysit your kids at my house while you go out tonight? Uh, I know you've got lots of deadlines at work, and I have a slow week, and I wanted to help you guys out. James says, oh, yeah, sure, thanks. When should I bring them over? And I say, uh, why don't you bring them over at 5, put them in their pajamas, and pick them up at 10 o'clock. Uh, we'll give them dinner and a bedtime snack, and also tell them to bring his favorite stuffed animal. Now, this is easy, right? A lot of, a lot of people here, you can do this with your eyes closed, right? You don't, need, you don't need some old guy standing up at a pulpit to tell you that. This kind of stuff you can figure out. But here's where things get interesting. And if you remember anything today, I want you to remember this, just this one thing, if you only remember one thing. Write it down if you're a writer or memorize it if you're a thinker, okay? In order for evangelism to be effective, acts of kindness must be anchored by a truth-filled conversation or we are doomed to erode the working of the Holy Spirit through apathy. I don't want to discourage anybody from doing a kind act. In fact, quite the opposite. I want to encourage it. But in order for evangelism to be effective, acts of kindness must be anchored by a truth-filled conversation or we are doomed to erode the working of the Holy Spirit through apathy. So I'd say to James, uh, listen, I wanted to watch Veggie Tales with them tonight. It's a kid's cartoon that tells Bible stories. Is that okay with you? James says, uh, no, actually, I'd prefer that you didn't. Uh, that makes me a little uncomfortable. We aren't religious. I say, oh, okay, no problem. We'll watch something more wholesome then, like Sharknado. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was doing so well until now. Oh. I yeah. Okay, listen, we don't have to watch VeggieTales. We can watch Winnie the Pooh instead, but are you still comfortable with them coming over? Uh, oh yeah, no problem, James says. Uh, I just want them to be exposed to religious stuff. So I say, yeah, uh, actually I'm not much into religious stuff either, but I do believe in God and in life after death. James says, yeah, my brother's a freak about God and church and stuff, so I've kind of had my fill of it. We don't talk much anymore, him and I, because he's always ramming it down my throat. Oh, we just identified his pain point. Now we have a chance to bring Jesus into the conversation. So I say, yeah, uh, you know, I'd be uncomfortable with stuff ramming, people ramming stuff down my throat too. So, like, I totally get that. Uh, well, listen, I promise I won't ram stuff down your kids' throats because your friendship is way, way too important to me. And he says, thanks, that's really nice. Most Christians fight with me when I tell them that I don't want to talk about Jesus and stuff. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to fight with you. But why don't you want to talk about Jesus? He's different, totally different than any other human that lived. You just threw the ball, is what you did there. You took a kind act into a faith-filled conversation. Now, it might be a home run. The game has not been won at this point, okay? It might be a home run. It might be a base hit. It might be a strikeout. You can't control that. 
but you just took the first step into sharing the gospel of Christ with a non-believer. That's what evangelism is about. A couple of notes from this conversation. First of all, I didn't abandon the conversation at the first sign of opposition. Uh, I saw it as an open invite to talk about things. See, this is important because we are conditioned. I talked about this on July 2nd when I spoke. We're conditioned to believe that an argument is bad. And so just a really brief recap from what I spoke about before. Um, A discussion is good, right? I like apples. And you say, oh, I like apples too. That's a discussion. A disagreement is also good. I like apples. And you say, oh, I like oranges. Okay, that's a disagreement. Uh, An argument is also good. That's where I say, I like apples because you don't have to peel them. And you say, well, I like oranges because they're sweeter. Okay, so we are using logical arguments. We're bringing in relevant facts to have an argument. And society has told us that that is bad. But arguing is good as long as it is relevant to the conversation and is done in peace. What happens is when an argument turns into a fight, this is bad. A fight is where you bring irrelevant pieces into it. You're an idiot. Why are you always talking about apples? Oh, quit being such a loser. Like, being a loser, being an idiot, now you're name-calling. That's irrelevant, and it's illogical, and that is bad. But people have taught us, society has taught us all, that arguing is bad. So I encourage you in evangelistic conversations, when people disagree with you on something, don't see that, well, if I continue the conversation now, I hate them. Okay, that is a lie that the enemy has brought in to sidetrack us from evangelism. The second thing about this conversation with James is, I am aware that it sounds a little bit corny as I present it here, right? This is kind of manufactured, and I'm like, oh, James, would you like me to, and he's like, oh, well, I think, like, I know it doesn't work like that, right? Conversation is kind of more organic, and it's messy. I get that. So practice is what is needed to overcome that. You have to try and have those conversations, and they'll feel faltering at first, but having the conversations is important. And like I said, things can go either way. James might say, no, I don't believe that, or I don't want to talk about that, but at least you threw the ball, and what happens from here is up to the Holy Spirit. I was camping about a month ago, and I was building a fire in the fire pit. I was doing the log cabin thing, you know, where you you lie uh, a log this way and then this way and then, and then this way and you put all the stuff in the middle, right? And then you light the fire and, okay, log, and, the, and this person around the fire, oh, you're a log home fire builder. And I'm like, well, sometimes, yeah, I mean, sometimes I do the TP, right? Sometimes I do the messy pile or, I don't know, gallon of gas and a propane torch, like whatever it takes. <laughs> There, there are many pathways to plasma, right? You can get fire by building any different way, and it, it will be successful. I don't do it just one way. And so, you know, if you're trying to capture an exact approach as I give a conversation like this, I think you might miss the meta-narrative, okay? The trick is to follow a kind act with a faith-filled conversation, not just do something nice. Buddhists... Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they're all nice people, okay? Actually, I personally know a murderer, okay? I've known him for about 13 years, a little over 13 years. He's in jail. He's responsible for the death of three people. Do you know what? He's a nice guy. I enjoy visiting with him. He loves his parents. He tells funny jokes. He's a nice guy. My challenge for all of us is not just learn how to be nice people. Learn how to pair a kind act 
with a faith-filled conversation. Okay, mercy. The scripture for mercy. Uh, Micah 6, 8. And what does the Lord require of you? This is my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So uh, here's how a conversation might look. Morning, Steve. How are you? Steve's like, great, Mark. I'm just headed out for a, gol- a, bol- a golf game. He says, uh, you look nice. Where are you headed? I say, oh, I'm, actually, I'm going to church. Do you want to come with me? He's like, no, uh, I don't do church anymore. I used to. I was involved a ton. Uh, I used to lead a Bible study, actually, for the youth at my church, but I don't go anymore. Pain point just came out right there. Something happened in his church. I say, oh, well, that's too bad. Why don't you go? He says, that's not for me. I've heard it all. And actually, I think that Christians act like they have all the answers to the world's problems. No offense, he says. You know, I'm tired of being judged for just being me. I'm not making this up. This, this actually happened to me. So, listen, I could take this guy on right now. He's a theological thinker, this guy, Steve, okay? And I can hold my own in a theological conversation, okay? I can talk about philosophy and theology all day long, but what would be the point of me hammering him down? In order to evangelize with someone, I need to first be able to peacefully coexist with them in the same space with that person while disagreeing with them. Don't hammer people. Listen to them. If I'm so offended by what you're saying that I start quoting and, and, and parroting scriptures back at you, then surely I'm going to miss the opportunity to be trusted by you enough to say something different than what you believe and be given a chance. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute here to demonstrate this to you. I did an unofficial, uncontrolled survey at the shop, okay? This, this could never be, this would never pass in the scientific journal. But I found that more than 50% of the youth attending the shop, they're 15 to 25 years old, believe the earth is flat. Scientific America did a survey of 10,000 millennials, sorry, I'm not picking on millennials, that's just the way it landed, and found that 34% of millennials believe the earth is flat. That means it's likely that a number of people right here in this room right now believe that too, okay? Maybe you chuckle when I say that, or maybe you don't think it's so funny when I say that. So let, let's open this up a little bit. It's like, uh-oh, where's he gonna go with this? <laughs> Pornography, it doesn't hurt anybody, right? I mean, the models, they choose to do that. We don't force them to. Marijuana, it's not a gateway drug. It's perfectly legal. Abortion, it says in the Bible that life begins at first breath not conception, right? Extramarital affairs, they're not harmful. Actually, there's a lot of cultures that believe that marital relations outside of the marriage relationship is actually helpful. Maybe not. Do any of these topics get your argumentative juices flowing? Like, some of you are, are, may actually be upset with me that I even mentioned this from the pulpit, pulpit. but listen, I'm not talking about what you or I think about these topics, okay? For the record, I don't advocate anything of what I just said. I'm talking about how quickly some of us get our backs up when these things are mentioned. 
and yet they're, they're issues that are the most destructive to the church and to the Christian faith. And we can't even converse about them without becoming enraged. Haven't even brought up LGBT issues. Don't hammer people. They don't need that. This is uh, similar to what my friend was trying to do with me here, right? He's like, well, Christians have all the answers. No offense, right? And I'm always being judged for what I do, you know. So I can get upset and I can fight or I can see these as signals that I've reached a pain point with him and I'm now ready to have a faith-filled conversation. So we need to get over ourselves <laughs> and learn how to love people rather than, you know, take them on and hammer them down. If you have the gift of mercy, bless you. You have a superpower in a conversation like this. Here's how it could go. Hey, listen, Steve, I wanted to say thanks for sharing with me how you felt about going to church the other day. Thank you for trusting me with that information. I want you to know that I wasn't offended at all. I think you're right in some ways, actually. Christians are just broken human beings, right? And you put us all together in a church on Sunday, of course there's going to be brokenness there, right? I mean, we're, this is what we're trying to do is spend time together and become more like Jesus. At least I know I'm going to fit in there, right? We're all broken. But listen, whatever happened to you that caused you so much pain, I want to say I'm sorry. On behalf of broken and messed up Christians everywhere, of which I am the worst, I'm sorry for being judgmental and hurtful. It's not the way that Jesus teaches us to act. God forgave me for my wrongs, and I don't expect you to forgive me for my wrongs just because I said this. I know it's not that simple, but if you give me the chance, I want to apologize and try to repair that hurt with you now. You just threw the ball. You tried to turn a good deed, which was just a conversation with him, into a faith-filled conversation. And what happens from here is up to the Holy Spirit. If you've ever been the recipient of that kind of mercy and I have, it is absolutely transformational. What I'm trying to do here is to show how to initiate a faith-filled conversation. If Steve opens up and is forgiving, then at this point, I have fertile ground to be able to talk to him about the next steps. And the next steps would basically be to say, look, we're all messed up, every one of us, right? Romans 3.23. Uh, the cost of that messed upness is death, Romans 6.23. John 3.16, though, tells us that the good news that that cost has already been paid by Jesus' death, and you can accept that payment by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Romans 10.9. This is the formula I use, but just like building a fire, it's not necessarily, well, it isn't the only formula that works. When I let my dog outside in the wintertime, she always goes to pee in the same 20-foot by 10-foot space. Okay, well, my yard's not that much bigger than that anyways, but she always goes to the same area. But if you look at her tracks in the snow in wintertime, when she leaves the door, she never goes straight to that spot. She goes this way, right? Or she'll go straight across and back or whatever. You never see this little path. My dog is all over the yard, but yet she always stops in the same place. Evangelism is nimble, and we have to be educated and able to articulate our, our faith through any pathway back to the same place. 
That doesn't mean we operate from a script. It means that we need to understand the basics of our faith and become conversant on communicating that with people, regardless of their disposition. To do that, you must know the basics of the gospel so you can bring the conversation back to God's love, not your wisdom. Speaking of wisdom, our scripture for the gift of wisdom is Isaiah 11:2, and this is from the TLB. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Here's how a conversation might go for a person gifted in wisdom while evangelizing. Hey, Lucy, how are things going between you and God? See, <laughs> I'll pause for a second. A wise person often knows when to go for the jugular <laughs> and when to keep quiet, right? Uh, so my assumption here is that the timing was right to have this conversation with Lucy. That's not the kind of thing you'd often just blaze into, right? But, hey, Lucy, how are things between you and God? Lucy's like, uh, not very good. I'm like, oh, why? Lucy says, well, I don't know. I don't really care. I mean, God doesn't talk to me. And I say, have you ever tried to talk to God? Lucy's like, why bother? I thought you said God was omnipotent. He knows everything. Why should I have to pray to him and ask for his help? Can't God do whatever he wants, with or without me? A wise person would say, well, yes, God can do whatever he wants. And no, he doesn't need your help to do it. But all through the Bible, he invites us to enter into a relationship and partner with him to accomplish his purpose, right? And if we approach our faith as a box to check off, then we miss the point. God wants our hearts, our willing and submissive attitudes, and there is indescribable joy in surrender. If you don't want to surrender, well, then I'm not sure I can help you. But if you do, you should know that the benefits are instant and eternal. For me, that joy turned into an infectious desire to share. It was my relationship with Jesus that gave me that joy. I can't guarantee that joy will be what you experience, Lucy, but I can guarantee that you can have absolute certainty that you are forgiven, that you are unconditionally loved, and that you can be assured a life in union with God. Now, the conversation might go, well, I'm already loved by someone, or I don't believe in eternal life. Sometimes things don't go well, and we're going to talk about that more next week. But you just threw the ball. Uh, notice this verse here. Can we put the verse back up for a second here? Because there's a bunch of things that are paired together. The spirit of wisdom. Wisdom goes with understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. These things are all what people with the gift of wisdom are known for. Okay, last one, helping. Our scripture is 1 Corinthians 3, 7. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. If helping is your gifting, you don't have to say anything first. You can just do something instead. Let your actions speak at first as long as they're geared towards starting a faith-filled conversation. Let's say my friend, we'll call her Alana, okay, is overwhelmed with full-time work, 
and, needs, and, and the needs of her household. It was just overwhelming to her. So I go over to help her cut the grass. I say, and Alana says, oh, that's fine. I don't need any help. So I say, well, listen, I'm not strong enough to do this all on my own. I'd need help just to survive in your position. And Alana says, oh, but God's never going to give me more than I can handle, right? Well, I say, uh, I don't know about you, but God always gives me more than I can handle. It turns me toward him. So we can bear this together in community. That's what part of being a follower of Christ is about, entering into relationship with God and becoming more like him through learning and fellowship with other believers. Do you want to know how to do that? Alana's like, no, not really. It's not for me. Okay. Well, I want you to know that I'm here to help as you grapple with all this stuff, but I'm not always going to be available. If you choose to submit to God's plan for your life, I'll guarantee you it won't be any easier. But you will have the peace of mind knowing that you are discovering God's plan for your life, which ends in peace, versus your own plan for life, which ends in death. You just threw the ball, and you turned a good deed into a faith-filled conversation. What happens from here is up to the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might be asking at this point how God works through these kind of conversations. What mechanism does God use to turn a faith-filled conversation and, turn, and use that to turn people toward him? This is an avocado plant, all right? It's one of, uh, it's one of Rainia's projects, and this has been ongoing for a number of weeks, maybe a number of months. I never knew what avocado plants looked like. She uh, ate the avocado, she liked it. And then she took the seed and said, oh, I think I'm going to make this grow. So she put it in there. How does this all grow? I mean, I, mitosis, I guess. I mean, cell division, light, oxygen, water. They all, I don't know. I'm not a biologist. But I've, you know, these things all yada, yada, whatever. They just they happen. And the plant grows. It's amazing. But, you know, I've talked to biologists. And they tell me that the deeper you get, the more mystery uncovers. So you can explain the process now in ways that you couldn't in the 1600s because we have technology and understanding that has grown. But still, there's a lot of mystery in that project, in that process. Thomas Aquinas, an Italian theologian from the 13th century, did not think the finite human mind could know who God is directly. He said God's existence was evident in itself, but not to us. In other words, it's very difficult to fully understand the complete extent of how God works. This is what Thomas Aquinas said. Obviously, this plant exists, and I like avocados, and there's a process by which it replicates because I can see other avocados in the grocery store, but I don't know exactly how that process happens. Thomas wrote more than 50 volumes of works, 50 volumes, and some of them had up to 30 books per volume. He wrote them all by hand. He wanted to know the process and understand who God really was. And you know what he said right before he died? This was his words. The end of my labors has come. All that I have written appears to be so much as straw, empty straw, after the things that have been revealed to me. He completely stopped writing at that point, and three months later, he died. One of the leading theologians in history couldn't fathom how God works. 
How does God reach people through my faithful evangelism? I don't know, but I know I like avocados. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. 1 Corinthians 3, 7, It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The 1993 Major League Baseball World Series was epic. It was the first time that a team had come from behind in the last play of the last game and won the game with a walk-off home run like that. But our evangelism efforts are not always going to look so great. And that's okay, because this is God's work, not ours. If we trust in the Lord with all our heart, we don't lean on our own understanding and we acknowledge him and all that we do, he will direct our paths. We know this because he told us so. This is the end of our discussion today, and next week we're going to be talking about what to do when things go wrong and they don't turn out like we planned for them to turn out. And then the following week, Rob is going to share with us about the spiritual burden of evangelism. So have a good week, and may God be with you as you share in faith this week. Peace.